0: Hey everybody, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever time it is you find yourself jamming this fresh episode of the Ebb and Flow podcast. I hope you guys had a tremendous Labor Day weekend, feeling recharged and rejuvenated, ready to take this week on, ready to take on the last few months of 2020. God knows what's in store for us, baby. But... As long as you're coming in with a strong attitude, a positive mindset, and the will to make it better, we're going to get through this thing together. I promise you that. You got to stay positive, man. You got to stay strong. Keep smiling. Stay in the light. The world needs you. I promise you. That is a fact. The world needs you and your energy, your uniqueness, your individuality, must be expressed into the world today, right now. I'm telling you. The world needs it. I need it. We need it. We need you. So, with that being said, I hope this episode of the Ebb and Flow podcast can help light those fires of inspiration, creativity, expression in you. It was a hell of a conversation with my brother, Ex-NFL-er Jared Odrick. Really one of my favorite dudes I've met in life after football, uh, I have to say. We crossed paths. We did not – I never played against Jared. Um, He actually came to the Jags, I think, I believe, the year I left and went to Chicago. Um, We never got a chance to line up across from each other, but I always remember him. He He was a monster for tech defensive end in a three-four system, um, strong as strong as hell, fucking powerful, uh, an incredible player. Had a lot of really good years. Was first-round pick to the Dolphins in 2010. But more important than that, and what we really connected on is how he thinks about the world and how he he sees the world and how he sees himself in it. And he, we connected on a number of issues, but most, most importantly was this evolution of the mind of, of the consciousness that occurs in, during your football career. And I'm sure this happens with any career that um, someone might have that they've, they've been in for a long time or at a very young age, you came into a very high intensity, um, career and all of a sudden you find yourself seeing outside the matrix or seeing through the matrix and the matrix of functioning that is for us, it was football. And that's a very systematic programming that you endure from the time you're a kid all the way through your NFL career until the day you walk out of that facility with the with the box of all your shit from your locker. And your life is completely changed and how you look at yourself and, and the world around you has completely transformed and you find yourself... Trying to grasp on to whatever bits of reality are still there, and yet your life has been completely obliterated. And you're put in this position where you have to completely re identify and reimagine yourself. And what does that look like? It's a profound experience. We juxtapose that experience with uh putting our our thinking caps on and examining some of the narratives flowing through our culture at the moment uh, it was very enlightening um very interesting he is a very high level thinker i really appreciate his perspective and his views and his willingness to share his his story and his ideas with and his insights his wisdom with us um So I think you guys will really enjoy this episode. We'll really get a lot out of it. Uh, Thank you so much again for your support and your your listening. I can't thank you enough. If you do enjoy this episode and you've enjoyed other Ebb and Flow podcasts in the past, please leave a review and rate the show and, and maybe even share it with your friends and family. If you think someone you know would really love something you heard on this show, Send them our way. That is the greatest show of support you can you can give, and uh, I would tr- be so honored if you rate rated and reviewed this show. Um, it's a big deal. I know it sounds silly, and it it's a pain in the ass, but I'm just putting it out there. So thank you in advance. So that being said, before I send you off, remember our partner. The one and only Invader Coffee. Head over to invadercoffee.com right now. Use code flow, all one word, to get 15% off your next order of the best coffee on the planet. It is organic. It is low acidity. It's veteran owned. It's, it's the best. Uh, I've, I had a cup this morning and it, it just lights you up with, with positivity and creativity baby so lots of love to you guys i hope you have an excellent day enjoy this show and i'll see y'all on the flip side peace
1: you have unlocked the eternal link to internal source the key of imagination your admission access to the enlightened dimension
0: What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Ebb and Flow podcast. I'm your host, Ebb and Britton. Got a really, really special show for you today. We are here at the former estate of famed, notorious beach boy, Brian Wilson, the genius behind the wall of sound and many other musical uh, innovations. It's a fantastic place right off Sunset Boulevard. And I'm here with my brother, ex nfl current philosopher. I mean, this dude, he's one of my favorite guys I've met in my life after football. And funny enough, we, were, we didn't cross paths on the Jags, but we both played for the Jags. Jared Odrick, welcome to the show, man.
2: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: Dude, I'm, I'm so pumped to have you. Uh, that first time we met, we were just talking about uh, how funny and weird our first encounter was at Tyson Ranch. Yeah. You were doing a story for Dab Stars. Dab
2: Stars. And yes.
0: you, were, you were there to interview Mike Tyson and talk about his cannabis brand.
2: Yeah, it was weird because it was like I came on your show to interview... Right you guys yeah and it it didn't really make any sense yeah and i think that's what we were all confused about yeah right it's like wait so we're gonna let this guy come into the space and then ask us the questions yeah wait this is not the format of our show yeah and that's what i was confused about too and i kept asking the ceo of the company like wait hold on do these (laughs) do these guys one do these guys know you because we had a pre-production meeting and we sat there for an hour before anybody walked into the room to even talk to us yeah and and so I was like, "Wait, do, hold on. One, do they know you? Two, do they like you? <laughs> <laughs> you know, three. Yeah. What the hell do you want me to do? Yeah, because you know, it seemed like I was just like a Trojan horse to kind of get into the area to infiltrate, to infiltrate, and have them uh, kind of establish some sort of relationship. And I really wasn't. It really wasn't clear on what they wanted. And so, but I think that's. I think that is such a Relatable sentiment uh-huh. amongst, or at least from my observations of, or I, I would assume it would be of NFLers. Yeah, I was just going out into this. the world and trying to uh, uh, transfer yeah. themselves into these other realms of of existence, of interaction, mm-hmm. of society, uh, without actually having the, the you know the the proper tools to tools. understand you know, how these business relationships work and don't work. Yeah. So.
0: No, I was just going to say that. And to me, that whole experience and that day in particular, it's a perfect microcosm of us NFLers, us barbarian warriors coming into the real world and trying to find our way into this, into new realms, whether it's art or production or media or whatever it might be what I found through that experience is while the whole time I'm looking around for someone to tell me what to do or where to go, they're all looking at me like, you're, you're the alpha here. You should just show us the way of what to do next. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So in that, we, we totally handled it and it ended up being a great conversation and beyond anything else, I felt so grateful to cross paths with you.
2: Yeah, and the same here, and and you know, because I, I I honestly kind of saw it as like, all right, Evans, a few years ahead of me in terms mm. of taking on this this world of of engaging thoughts, and I I think what I noticed about you and in, in your speech patterns is that you enjoy uh, getting into the nature of things, mm. and I think that's a difficult. Way of thinking inside an NFL locker room. Yeah. Is that the discussion of the nature of the game, the nature of our, uh, um, of our relationships in the locker room, the nature of uh, our characters and how they're transposed onto society? Mm. You know, the, the nature of these things aren't questioned in a locker room. And it is actually counterintuitive to, a, to an athletic career to kind of investigate the nature of this while you're in it mm. because it kind of slows you down because that yep. that dude across from you is salivating. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yes. Salivating at playing the character that he is. Yes. And being the character that he is. And I think that's compounded in a locker room when people are sending guys uh, products to their locker and guys are promoting it for free yeah. on their Twitters and Instagrams just because it fulfills the character that they think that they're supposed to be. mm And that was one of the craziest things I would say to guys. I'm like, why are you tweeting? How much you making? (laughs) And they're like, oh, I. I My agent just sent me a box of this. uh, (laughs) I ain't ain't making nothing. You just, uh, I get this free stuff if I tweet it out. I'm like, that's worth at least 15K, you (laughs) tweeting it out. You got 80,000 followers, dude. That's 15K in your pocket right now. Why are you. But it's really just the affirmation that I am an athlete. Mm. I get free things. Uh, because of what I do. And it's just really identity solidification. Mm. Mm. And so I guess what I'm saying is that I saw you down the road mm. uh, in terms of taking on these new realms of uh, of kind of imparting your, uh, your experiences and the types of conversations that you wanted to have. And I thought it was really respectable. I respected it that you were able to enter a space with a guy like Mike Tyson, mm. uh, the experiences that he had. Um, the cannabis spaces um, and, and speaking in in ways that I'm sure you weren't able to fully express within the context of a locker room. You kind of found that mm. and you, and I'm sure you're still finding it Yeah, and you know, but that's something that I appreciated and that I want to represent to players that come after me, which is you don't have to be the guy that cuts the, the, the cardboard check you know, and presents it at halftime of your high school basketball game. You don't have to be the guy that goes back and becomes a coach in the game. You can still uh, benefit mm. young athletes and young men from speaking to your interests and what's yeah. in your heart. Mm. You know, you don't have to be the guy that, that goes back and uh, and becomes one of the six slotted things that former NFL guys become. And that's what I appreciated about you and being able to cross paths with you is seeing that you're out here in LA and you're, you're, you're doing it. You're, you're, you're putting yourself in different spaces. And you, you know, I think what I recognize about myself is that it may be, I may be ignorant of some of these things, but I'm not lying. Mm. Right. You know, I, you know, I, I, I may not be right, but at least I ain't lying. Mm. And I've always felt that about, about you. And that was what was cool about running across you
0: then and there. Dude, that, I huh? appreciate that so much, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I appreciate that so much. Cause I feel that way about you. And I have a tremendous amount of respect for you. Uh, I mean, just that 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 level of awareness in the locker room of, dude, why are you tweeting that out? Are you getting paid to do that? Yeah. No. You know, just that level of, aware, of awareness. And then I remember coming across your Instagram. And you do a lot of really interesting, thought-provoking, abstract posting on Instagram. Yeah. Because Instagram becomes, or social media in general, it becomes such a a masturbation of uh, just like, let's ejaculate ourselves out into the world, out into the collective consciousness so everyone can see how great we are and how well we're doing and how good-looking and smart and sexy and knowledgeable it's an interesting we are but you've never as far as I can tell man you have always been calling attention to real things that are happening in a way that opens people up to being able to receive it I mean one thing in particular and we'll get into this in a second is you know the blackout Tuesday moment. Mm-hmm. Where everybody's posting the black square. I, I did it myself, mm-hmm. and I want to talk about that too. And you posted like a yellow square. Mm-hmm. And I thought, this motherfucker. Uh, that, seeing you do that, I was like, wow. There's something, there's something very tunnel vision about this whole movement and all of these narratives. And through this whole process of, coronavirus in particular, I mean I've always considered myself to be a very open-minded open-hearted person but this whole process has taken me into a rapid evolution of my own consciousness and my own thinking around things to the point where one day to the next I'm, I, I'm re-evaluating completely in totality my beliefs around what's happening what's real mm-hmm. and it's become super clear to me through this process that it's very difficult to discern what is actually happening in the world right now. Yes. And much of that is due to the corporatization and politic politicization of mainstream media and social media. There's no objective news anymore where you're getting just a fundamental baseline view of what's happening. Mm-hmm. We don't see that you get a biased view uh, 60 30 to 60 second clip of a snippet of something that happened where you don't see what happened before or what happened after you don't see the stories that are unfolding in real time and it's skewing our perception of reality mm-hmm. and it's created this maze of confusion that many people are falling falling into the trap of mm-hmm. um you know it's so interesting talking about I mean, maybe we should go into that first, but I kind of wanted people to just get a little glimpse of, because you said something really interesting to me. You played defensive line. Mm-hmm. When did you come out? Or when did you, you got drafted in? Drafted
2: 2010.
0: Okay, so, so at, one year Penn after State.
2: me. Yeah, I was at Penn State. Yep. Drafted in 2010 to the Dolphins. Was there for five years. Played out that first round contract. Um, and then Dolphins didn't even give me a look uh, nothing so i halfway through the season i realized okay all these games are auditions
1: mm, right? yeah i got to audition now for yeah. other teams yeah so
2: i would go to the other sidelines after i make a play and i'd start barking <laughs> right and i'd say you see what i just did you see that <laughs> I, said, I love that dude. I, I said I, I said you know i said i know my, how much money you guys have i said i know how much money you guys have what's up
0: i <laughs> love <know>? that bro <laughs>
2: And so, you know, that it became so motivating for me to do that. But, yeah, I was with, with, with the Dolphins for five years, and then I signed with the Jags in 2015. And I signed a five-year deal with them, but only ended up playing two. Mm. So. Uh,
0: what was it that you only played two? Did you get hurt? Or were you disillusioned? I'm sure you were disillusioned before that.
2: Well, my first season with them was was, was not that bad. I, I led the team in sacks mm. that year. Um I think I had seven and a half or eight. Mm. So it wasn't like a crazy amount of sacks. But when you get seven and a half or eight sacks in a season, that's that's nothing to scoff at. No, yeah. Uh, especially for kind of a, you know, a four-tech. Right. Where a majority of the time I'm I'm two-gapping over, a, a you know, a, a big a son tackle. of a bitch like yourself. Yeah,
0: exactly. You man. know what I mean? Yeah, and, totally, man. And
2: so I'm in a flat stance, you know, flatter than an offensive lineman across from me. Mm-hmm. and uh, And so – That first year wasn't that bad, but then the second year, I just had a string of injuries. Mm. Um, And the funny thing was, I was breaking through a lot of really good uh, old scar tissue Mm. from my injuries and some of the metal that I have in my legs. But it's almost like that left me more vulnerable because I didn't have these new access areas trained, Uh right? Yeah, I didn't have them uh, prior. And so now it was like, I I rolled my ankle because I had more access, but it wasn't strong. Mm. Um, So I kept having these second game of the season. I always kill San Diego's offense. Uh Always. I always have a great game against San Diego. Tear my tricep. Uh. And I was so pissed because we're in San Diego. And it was a burst tear because I had somebody come in. Their helmet hit Uh. my tricep so hard that it tore the tricep. Not from using it. Yeah. From it just getting hit. Uh. And it pissed me off so much because <laughs> it's like this is my stat game. Mm-hmm. And it was the second game of the season. This mm-hmm. is I need to get my stats now mm. because if I don't the position I play and all the other teams that we play don't don't give as many opportunities for me to make plays. Yeah. And so uh so I got super pissed then and then you know, then came back like six games later, uh from a torn tricep. <sighs> you know, tore part of my quad, Ugh. right? Then got PRP in the tricep, got PRP in the quad, then came back from that two weeks later, rolled my ankle. Ugh. And, you know, and then come back from that in October and I I, uh, I tear something in my shoulder. Mm. And uh, uh, my labrum. And, and so those things were happening. And, you know, me and the team and the GM, uh, I think, you know, that's where... I had more time mm. to myself and I was living on the beach in Jack's Beach. Mm, Still, Every day I'm driving home and I'm I'm fucking doing 140 on the JTB. <laughs> right? 140 <laughs> totally every day way, to get home so I have as much time to myself mm. from that building. Yeah. Right. I so I can too, have right. the time to listen to the waves crashing, mm. to smoke a joint and a spliff on the beach and go get some of that bold bean coffee. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And just sit there. Yeah. And that is what I, that is the experience that I had that led me to, to say, maybe you need to walk away from this.
1: Mm. Maybe,
2: you know, maybe, maybe this isn't, maybe this is something that, or and if it's not, football then maybe you need to leave jacksonville mm. you know and these thoughts started creeping inside my head and uh i was reading a lot i met this you know you, you know beautiful artist uh you know that we ended up started you know talking and hanging out and dating and uh and we'd walk up and down the beach and it was like i started to build this whole other life mm. and this whole other personality that addressed issues i was listening to podcasts i don't listen to very many podcasts now but at that point in time I was listening to a lot of Mark Marin uh-huh and I would listen to it you know after I would get through I had a routine of shows that I would watch and like things that I would engage when I would get home from the from the from the practice day or really the rehab day right and uh, I would dive into all these other interests uh, that had to do with media and I would listen to Mark Marin as I would go to sleep Because it would kind of, those conversations were outside the context of sports. Mm. And it was like I was trying to associate and affiliate myself with these conversations of, could I even dive into these things? Mm. Do I have the social lexicon to be able to even jump into these things? You know, uh, because I had some friendships with some comedians in New York, uh, in and around the comedy cellar. And there were a lot of times where it's like, I can't even contend or tend to that in the same fashion because I've had such a singular existence Mm. and it was almost like my existence there uh, and the value that I brought to those conversations was to play the role of athlete for Mm. them. Yeah. You know, as opposed to social commentator. Right. (laughs) And so, uh, and so it was, it was an interesting time and that's what kind of led to that. And then when I got cut by the Jags, I was in DR and I knew it was coming, you know, but I took a picture and uh, I was on the phone. I was on the beach in Cabarete in, in Dominican Republic, and I was smiling ear to ear because it actually felt like a release. It uh-huh. felt like, fuck, man. You know, you know this. This maybe I can go in another direction. Maybe I have something that I can I can do and that I can invest in. So that's kind of how that unfolded. I'm not sure if that was clear, but
0: very clear. Uh, it was very clear. Uh, I resonate a lot with that experience, man. Um, there's nothing quite like having done this thing for so long, which, you know, it, reaching the NFL, it takes a, a Herculean effort, man, on all fronts. No question. You know, first of all, you're gifted with the physical body, but then you put the work in to take yourself there yeah. and it's, you know, people think, oh, it's just training hard or, oh, it's just an eating regimen or whatever it might be. No, this is. You take on a whole persona of who you are, how you carry yourself, how you think, how you approach the world, how you approach every single day of your life, and it's all about reaching the top of this mountain. And then all of a sudden, like for me, my I blew out, I herniated my disc, mm. L5S1. That was the first thing. And so that destroyed my... my sciatic nerve. I couldn't feel my right foot on the ground. Then I was battling through managing that pain, and then halfway through that season, I'm starting at right tackle, dislocate my shoulder twice in a game against the Chiefs. I'm done for that year, so now I'm on IR. I've got a blown-out disc, and I have to have shoulder surgery. And then, so you're totally removed that experience of being on injured reserve, and you just come into the facility to get rehab. And then you go home, and you've got all this time on your hands that you have never had before in your entire adult life. And I remember that same thing, man. I, for me, I remember watching the movie North Dallas 40. Mm. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Nick Nolte, it's one of the best yeah. football movies. I'm watching this movie, and it's about, he he plays this veteran-wide receiver who's kind of on the, He's on the shit list with the front office and the coaches. They don't like him because he's sort of an outlier. Mm-hmm. Like he's, he's got the best hands on the team, but they don't want to play him because they got to pay the vet more, and they've got an up-and-coming rookie who they want to invest all their time and money in.
2: That, that's, that, it, it's, that's literally the yeah. NFL experience. Exactly. Like that's, that's it over and over and over
0: again. Exactly. And as a, as a rookie, I remember coming into the Jags and I'm watching vets go through this thing. And I'm like, fuck, that sucks. But being removed from it because I'm the guy right now. And then all of a sudden getting into my fourth year in Jacksonville where now I've had two years that were really bad injury years for me where I had to be put on injured reserve. My second year for the shoulder and then my third year I had back surgery to fix the herniated disc. Mm -hmm. Came back kicking ass like an all pro season unfolding in front of me week 11 or 11 weeks after surgery. So it's like week six or seven because I had surgery the first week of training camp. Yeah. I'm in Pittsburgh. We're going to play the Steelers and I can't get out of bed because my back is seized up and it turns out I have an infection in the disc. Oh wow. So I had to go on eight weeks of intravenous antibiotics, totally destroyed my, my body. I lost like 40, 50 pounds then came back from that for my fourth year, you know, and it's like, yeah. at the time I was just, I just kept coming. I was like, I'll do whatever it takes to get back into this thing. But that, that disillusion of that self, of that persona that we were talking about, you know, and then.
2: But I think that's a necessary part. Absolutely. That's the conversation I literally just had with actually an ex-girlfriend over the phone because mm. she's, she feels stuck in this position mm. and I'm like, well. You almost have to do some type of counterintuitive measures or action, mm-hmm. like something that is illogical to your current framework. Yeah. In order for you to break out of it. Yeah. In order for you to see the pattern in which you've been moving. Yeah. Is that you have to do something antithetical to that pattern. Mm. Right. Yeah. And if you're not going to do something antithetical to that pattern, you won't ever see the pattern that you're actually in. That's right. And so that's where you know this kind of you know you you, you go from this regimented athlete to like drop an acid in Utah. Yeah. Like that's what it's for. Yeah, right? it's for like whoa. Like I see the structure in which I've existed. Uh huh. It's like now. It's like now. Now, the I, I've I, I do I try to tell because young people will come and, and ask me. It's like well, what do you do? And it's like well, there are these points where you drop the acid. There's these points where you take take the shrooms. Uh huh. It's not a perpetual thing. It's yeah. not a lifestyle. Uh huh. Right. It, it's more of an expression. It's, yeah. a, it's a point of doing that so you can pivot. And it gives you this extra boost of being able to pivot from kind of this 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 pattern that you've been in. And but I think what you're saying is is when when you when you break from that and you had this you know identity crisis, uh, or when you're able to abstract from that. And I think that's probably one of the biggest times. And that's why it's such a a, a uh, you're treated as a cancer uh, mm. in the the football uh, yeah. facility when you're hurt is because that man's thinking now yes that man has some time to think yeah and that in 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 terms of objectivity Hmm. thinking is is the antithesis of the 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 weekly uh uh the kind of weekly status and the weekly objective of an an nfl team
0: absolutely man yeah they don't want thinkers in there
2: no not at all actually (laughs) i actually michael bennett who played with me
0: oh and i played with his his brother marty Oh, oh, the
2: other Michael Bennett. There's another Michael Bennett. Oh, okay. Younger guy that I played with at, uh, who who was a D tackle at Ohio state my second year or first year with the Jags. He was a rookie with us. Okay. Got drafted. Yeah. First year uh, with the Jags, he got drafted with us and he remembers, and he says it explicitly, um, because he takes pride in his linguistic ability to enunciate, Mm -hmm. to have other interests that he really felt that he dropped. He thought he was going to be Second round. Mm. But he dropped, I think, to the third, fourth, or fifth round. And he thinks he dropped because teams would give him a hard time about having exterior interests. Mm. Right? And I don't necessarily fully disagree with that. Mm. I think that you need some sort of tunnel vision, some sort of ignorance Mm. that will keep you within the confines in order for you to stack or build or... Ascend within the confines of football. Yeah. Um, Because as soon as I did start wanting to address my ignorances of my interests, that's when football kind of became like pliable.
0: Yeah. Less interesting. Mm -hmm. Totally, man. Absolutely. So we come out of football. And for me, it was this you know, I had a family, I had a wife, I had a daughter. We had to figure out what we were going to do, so we decided we're going to move back to L.A. My wife is from L.A. I've got, you know, I spent basically the second half of growing up in L.A. I was born in New York City, moved to L.A. when I was 10. So my mom and my brother were here. So I was like, let's set up shop in L.A. And, you know, the process of, of that shedding of that skin continues, and it's It's painful, and it's ugly, and there's shame, and there's guilt, and there's all sorts of ideas, and you talk to strangers, and like we were saying earlier, they're saying, well, why aren't you still playing, dude? You're so young, you could still play, and you're like, dude, I'm fucking done.
2: Yeah, Tom Brady's not the norm. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) I'm I'm
0: done, bro. Six (laughs) years was plenty. I mean, I hope when I was a rookie, I said, I'm going to play for 10, but 10 is a lot. That is. Six is a lot.
2: And that's the, that's honestly when people ask. Ooh, when people ask. <laughs>
0: it's all good, man.
2: When people ask, you know, well, what made you want to quit? And I think a lot of people usually go to. And that was the whole impetus behind me making the, the CTE doc, which is, you know, was it the concussions? Mm. Mm, man, are you messed up up there? Yeah. And it's like you have to fight for your own validity. Yeah. Because everybody thinks that you're, you're this kind of. uh you know, worn out, uh, mm. you know, gladiator or, 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 you know, tool. Yeah. And, and so I think that's, you know, one of the things that, 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 ah, there's an original point that I had uh, before that. And I, of course, I go off in the CT direction. But in terms of, you know, people engaging you like that, it's, you end up having to fight so much for, you know, to clear out this 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 new path or this new identity, or or why haven't you? And then mm-hmm. you mentioned you mentioned the time, the amount of time that you yes. saw that you were like, I want to play ten years. Uh-huh. Well, I was in year six, year seven. I played seven years, right? I was in year six and year seven, and I started seeing guys that were in the league ten years, eleven years, twelve years, thirteen years, and I didn't want to be like them. Mm. I yeah. saw their demeanor. Yeah. I saw the way they they kind of like the things that they had to do and be ignorant of in order to continue playing. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't want to be that. Yeah. I don't want to be that way at 35. Yeah. I want to be something that expands past this mm-hmm. at 35. Yeah. You know, and I sat there and I'm like, I don't I don't know if I want to like I started seeing I started losing heroes Mm. I didn't find anybody else in the locker room that I could look up to yeah there was no other characters within the realm of a locker room or a football franchise that it's like I want to ascend to that there was no longer an ascendancy or availability of ascendancy for me in the direction and the things that I was interested in Mm -hmm. so it all of a sudden became I started looking at the guys that were older than me and I was like I felt sad I felt bad for them yeah because it felt like they were trapped yeah as opposed to you know, blossoming into anything new or different as their thirties, you know, uh, you know, crept along.
0: Absolutely. man. So. There's a lot of, when you start getting into that realm of your career, what I saw was there's a lot of having to play the game. You got to have to, you have to start playing the game with the front office people with the yeah, coaches, you got to know the GM's favorite drink. And you got to sideline no. yourself mm-hmm. again. You've already sidelined yourself to play this game, you know, and to get to this level. But now you you have to put yourself even more on the bench so that you you and your ego are not upsetting the balance of you getting another deal mm-hmm. or getting another contract. So I totally saw that, and I, I don't really want this to be all about football, but. <laughs> I think that a lot of what you said is super important for people to hear and it's, it's very, uh, I resonate with all of it, man. The one thing I want to end with on the football note because I want to get into some other more interesting stuff. Um, but one of the saddest things I think I've seen in my life after football is there was a, a receiver for the Cowboys. I'm not exactly sure of his name, Uh, But he's been, this was a couple years ago, he's been up for, to be voted into the Hall of Fame now, a few times, and he keeps getting denied. And a couple years ago, they had this footage of him sitting with his family, watching the Hall of Fame ballots come in, and watching his name not get called one more time. And this guy now, he probably, I think he played with Staubach, so he's like in his 60s, 70s now. And the guy sees that his name didn't get called and he slams the table and he goes, look at this. Look how they did me again. And I thought to myself, God, what a tragedy. Because you've already given so much of yourself to this game that now you're literally letting them take your peace of mind. Yes. And you're letting them take more from you now.
2: Yes. I had that very conversation with Brandon Marshall when I was in Paris. Mm. I love B. Marsh. Because he he's like he's like I can, he goes I can play another year and I, I can make Hall of Fame. I'm like I said he was I, I got to make Hall of Fame. I got to make Hall of Fame. And I'm like, dude. Yeah. I said don't give them that. Yeah, don't, don't give them give, that. Like you, you can't give them the power over
0: over your identity, your well being. So, like, dude, you're so much more. You're so much more vast than a football player, man. Mm, yeah. Like what a what a brilliant experience. What a magnificent experience to have. To have had to play, to be a modern day gladiator, Mm -hmm. you know. But don't let that define you. Yeah. Let's evolve into the fucking, the poet sages that we were destined to be, to the entrepreneurs, to the masters of industry, whatever that might be, to the artists that we, you know.
2: But I think, but I think this is why we end up talking about football and its transition so much, Mm -hmm. so we can provide context. Yes. Because there was no context for, or at least for me and you coming out of it it's like somebody give me some context on how to transition yeah right yeah and and i think that's why we get so stuck on this is because it 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 was so uh uh, i always feel that these conversations you hope that other guys would be able to hear or click on this Mm. and be like oh okay like so i can be ignorant i can be stupid for a little while oh it might take me two or three years to actually Mm. catch a stride again you know and and I think that's why we get stuck because it's not always we have these. It's not always we have these opportunities to speak about uh, that transition this way. And it's not a really you know a solidified, programmed, subsidized, uh, uh, yeah, you know, part of you know the the athlete experience. So yeah, I, I I I always want to move on to the next part of the conversation, but always get stuck on this part because it's it's. It's a constant thing that I think we, we think about, and being able to transfer that knowledge to other, other people and players.
0: You're so right yeah. you're so right, because there isn't much of a blueprint outside of, like you said earlier, those six after football careers that guys go into. Mm-hmm. being a broadcaster, being a talking head, being a coach, being a, you know, like a counselor or something like that for a football team. Mm-hmm. you know these these gigs that are sort of lined up for guys like us yeah which dude when i came out i went straight to my high school and said can i be a coach here mm-hmm. and i went and i started coaching the o-line i lasted about six games Wow. because i i found myself I'm like what am i doing here yeah i don't want to talk to these kids about football yeah i'm so over this shit yeah like there's so much more that I want to discuss with these young men and and, yes. and impart to them beyond fucking X's and O's.
2: Yeah, and that's exact. That's exactly why I've tried to go in the direction of the projects that I that I've been undertaking. You know. That's, yeah, man. That's the exact thing.
0: Well, I think it's what you said too. You know, it comes back to this thing of the the greatest thing you can give to the world is being yourself and giving from your heart and just following that in your life after football, Mm -hmm. you know, don't let the, the preconceived notions of what's available to you or your limits be the narrative that you fall into, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think that brings us to where we're at right now. I mean, look, dude, I, I think you are such a, I have so much respect and so much admiration for you and your fluidity of thought and your consciousness and where, how you've built yourself and worked on yourself and life after football. I mean, but you, you're this guy though, you know, you, you have always been this guy. You've just been sharpening the tool. Now you've had an opportunity to sharpen the, the intellectual, emotional tools that you have. Mm. Um, you know, and there's a lot happening in the world. There's a lot being revealed. A lot of veils are falling. There's, you know, these these very deep-running narratives through mainstream media of racial injustice, of uh, medical practices, of pol- political agendas. And, you know, frankly... I mean we're in a massive evolution as a as a culture. Yeah. I think particularly in America. Mm-hmm. You know, I I didn't really get to travel the world much. So when I talk about this, it seems very American the yeah. issues that we're facing right now. Mm-hmm. Um and you know, recently I saw you on Brandon Marshall's pod. Uh and it was, you know, discussing Racial injustice in particular, or, you know, the racial narratives that I think the left in particular are perpetrating and continuing to push as this is the reality of the situation. Yeah, Racism in America. Mm -hmm. And for me as a white man, I don't really consider myself white (laughs) given I have Native American ancestry and a whole other myriad of cultures blended into my family bloodline. But for all intents and purposes, I'm a white man Mm -hmm. in America. And I have lived with the quote-unquote privilege, if we're using the terminology of the mainstream media, of, of the white life. And it occurs to me that as a white person right now, it's only acceptable to live under this guise of white shame, yeah, shame for who you are and who you, and the life you've led, and the, the you know the majesty of you know privilege and um and it's difficult to start a conversation about this thing and about what's really going on. You know, it started this whole thing. I mean, it started. We've seen it for years and years now but i feel like this year what really catapulted us into this realm was the george floyd video Mm -hmm. and the uh the cop kneeling on george's neck for nine minutes killing him and it sparked you know all kinds of uproar Mm -hmm. protests rioting tons of angst and uh very heavy emotional uh energy and, and for the most part i think rightfully so um you know and and as a as a white dude who grew up with some of my best friends or black dudes in locker rooms and and the other interesting thing about this is the the fact of in a locker room on a football team That is the epitome of diversity in motion. So much so. You know, there is no color. Like, we're all brothers in there fighting for this thing. And, like, it doesn't even matter, the skin color.
2: And even when color comes up in a locker room, it still gets washed away by what the fuck do we have to do today? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. It's like we all have to go through, you know, indie period. We it, all have to go through one-on-ones. We all have to go through, yeah. you know, half-line drills. Yeah. So as soon as as soon as soon color comes up, it totally gets erased by yeah. uh, the objectivity of the game.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm just trying to make sense of it, you know. I'm trying to see okay, we see a 30-second or a minute-long clip of a cop shooting a black dude in the back or whatever it might be. That gets turned into an entire movement of there's racial injustice defunding the police. We need to eradicate law enforcement and completely overhaul the system. And... You know, it's like, okay, okay, that, I I hear these conversations, and I understand that this is, we have to begin to acknowledge all of these issues. But at the same time, what's the reality of, of the situation? What is really happening? And where are we at? And so, you know, you're a guy who I think speaks on a very high level about these things, and has a very interesting perspective on what's happening. Yeah. So... I don't know where – if there's somewhere in there that you want to begin.
2: Yeah, I think – well, I think that
0: – And maybe even just addressing what I said and no, say no, where exactly. I'm at. No,
2: exactly. And I think I think when you start to speak about how the impetus behind all of this uh, being, you know, perceivably George Floyd, um, I think there's been previous George Floyds. Yeah. Uh, in the same fashion or character – in that there is a straight black male uh, involving himself or the police involving themselves with one another Um, and there being some type of uh, violent interaction um, between those two ideas and entities coming together and then it being on video or not being on video. And I think increasingly they've used the the, the ones that, that have been on video in order to uh, spur public attention. Um, and it seems to be a pattern that has only increased in relevance of using uh, black males and the images of them to be martyrs for a cause. Mm. Because once you start to think about the Black Lives Matter Uh, initiative and support. I don't see any other straight black males at the forefront of this movement other than being used as potential social currency, you know, of a hashtag or to put on the back of their NBA jerseys, right? Right, And that becomes more of an advertisement more than anything. Mm. And I guess what I'm saying is is that I see the pattern that – or I I try to – I try my best to take a step back in a lot of these issues and one know that it's not exclusive uh, uh covid and this aren't mutually exclusive uh, these are all together yeah. and I think when you take people so I'll address two things um one is the pattern of participation that covid has taken us out of two the pattern in which straight black males are only used as martyrs, uh, when they are dead or associate with the victim narrative, mm. that those are the only two times that, uh, black males seem to be at the forefront of this, this movement or, or, uh, is when they're on murals and people paint angel wings behind them. Mm. Uh, and people use their images constantly for their social positioning and, and social currency online. Um, it it seems to be that those are the the forms. That's what we're we're kind of castrating masculinity in a way. And I think what black males in America represent is a physicalized version of a a full expression of masculinity. Mm. And I think that's kind of what the black athlete represents too. Mm. And it feels like the only time that we end up seeing these straight black males associated, uh, largely associated with society, is when they're either attached to a victim narrative, a slave narrative, Mm. or uh, used as a martyr. And it it feels like a form of social castration that we can't appreciate any of the other facets uh, of the masculinity um, that, that males have. And I think that also has uh, uh, affected, but in a different way, white males and uh, that they're not allowed to exude confidence um, mm-hmm. or yeah. any type of, uh, or any type of intellectual ferocity in moments like this, because then that's acting as an oppressor right. of some sort, because you have intellect and you want to apply it. And I think that's, that's, that's something that's been allowed mm-hmm. for me to do. Uh, I think, just simply off face value of the, the, the texture of my hair. Mm. <laughs>
1: Seriously. <laughs>
2: yeah. Like I grow my dreads out and sometimes it feels like a protective mechanism from mm. people being able to call me a racist simply because I am mixed. It feels like an insurance policy. Mm. And so um, I think that's one thing. Um, but then two, uh, with, with the way that COVID, what COVID has done and the way that the systems that govern our morality – our collective morality, they've taken us out of the patterns of participation that we're able to have. We we don't have our usual work routes. Um, We don't have our usual engagements with coworkers. Uh, We don't have our programs that we're usually watching. Uh, We've been taken out of this pattern and it's similar to, to what we talked about before is that you don't recognize the pattern you were in until you're, you're you're taken out of it. Mm. And I think what COVID has kind of done, um, and I honestly think it's it's a it's a tool of of those that kind of largely dictate what America is about and uh its its collective moral sentiments. It's kind of liquidated us from this previous uh social participation and pattern. And when you're not allowed to participate, when you're not allowed to go out into the world and be in traffic, uh to have that you know, slightly sarcastic uh, uh, conversation with the Starbucks uh, employee, you uh-huh. know, that is, you know, it, that do, that's disgruntled about the, their position or the person ordering it is disgruntled, you know, or, you know, having the interaction uh, that you usually have out in the world running into people. When you're running into people in the world, you know, Marshall McLuhan calls, you know, these these small... Mm. forms of violence their interactions their engagements their clashing and that's what helps you form your identity Mm. right these these acts of violence uh or aggression um or even just running into people in in the world and in society is what allows you to 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 provide yourself a set of coordinates of identity it's like this is where i stand right when i run into this person and i react you know uh with aggression it's like oh okay that's what I react to um, to this interaction or I react to this person with grace and understanding. It's It gives you a coordinates of who you are. Mm. And when you remove yourself from these social engagements, you, you start to lose identity. Mm. It's the same thing with football. If I'm not training on Thursday, if I'm not playing the game on Sunday, if I'm not preparing for the next week, if I'm not getting ready for bye week, if I'm not then who am I then what am I uh. without this application of these these morals we lose the, these coordinates of who we are and so it really feels like a a, a collective liquidation of identity uh. and it really seems like with all the, the the CTE research and ending up being you know kind of neuropsychological research that, that I've been doing by default in order to make this documentary about CTE has been if you don't Use it, you do in fact lose it. Mm, yeah. Right? When you don't use your capacities, and what it seems like is happening with COVID is that we're losing a collective capacity. It oh. feels like we're going through a collective form of dementia oh. where we're losing capacities to communicate and engage. So, where we become these blank slates of the only engagement that we get to have, we're, we're especially at the beginning of this uh, COVID experiment uh we we were watching life unfold more than than living it yeah we were watching way more content than we were able to even and life is facilitated through content mm. through producing it making it uh and then watching it and nothing is of any value is relegated to not recording it right and not putting it out and so the thing is is that there's nothing left that is sacred and mm. since there's nothing that is sacred and you have no sanctity of mind uh, all of your values all of your identity is facilitated through the streams that are still able to produce content stories characters that live out the morality of the 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 the, the stories provided for us so what it what it really felt like to me is that none of these uh, racial issues uh, and people's engagement with them is separate from the idea of covid in that going out there in the street and protesting, going out and even rioting, or going out and changing your podcast name from I am athlete to I am black is a sense of identity retention. Mm. Right? It's to retain identity, it's to it's it's to be able to know that it's it's said that catastrophe is the only Uh, catalyst for morality Uh. and it and that when you when you have these these restrictions of the normal character that you get to play in everyday life uh, that then the opportunity to then enact some sense of identity to go out there and protest is the only available source of identity enactment of actually physically engaging in something that means something because everything else is restricted. It's gone. I'm no longer a computer programmer. I'm a Black Lives Matter activist. Mm. I'm no longer a football player. I'm a Black Lives Matter activist. And it's incentivized. Mm. It's obviously incentivized. You don't think that flying a helicopter over top of this moving protest, it happened even in my small hometown of 25,000 people in Lebanon, Pennsylvania. People went out to protest this Racial injustices um, and this bigotry that's stopping and oppressing black people all over the country, which isn't a part of my rhetoric or narrative or, or, or vocabulary, but it was apparent and present there. And I thought these people that came. That were in the streets, they did exactly that. They came to my hometown. It was like a traveling caravan of Black Lives Matter protesters. Huh? that took the microphone that were from New York, that were from Maryland, that were coming here to my small hometown of Lebanon where it's very multi, multi-ethnic. And a lot of people are mixing. I've seen more mixed kids in that town than I've seen uh, anything else. <laughs> and they came to here to tell us what our problems were from the outside world. That's really interesting. And, and I'm like, wait, 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 wait. Why aren't we telling you our experiences here? Uh-huh. As opposed to you downloading the world onto us, mm. it felt like the Globetrotters came to town. It felt like WWE came to town, where there were signs and billboards and megaphones and a and a crowd with that that replicated the WWE kind of presentation. And people are chanting and saying these three syllable, four syllable chants. You know, fuck all cops. All cops are bastards. And it, it didn't. It, it was like then the people with the microphone. Asked the big boss man with the club and the, and the gun to come up here and kneel before them. <laughs> and I was like, this is, this is literally an episode of WWE. This is Monday Night Raw.
1: Wow.
2: And it felt really weird because then that protest, then they're like, we're going to go mobile. And they start marching throughout the streets. And when you have a helicopter following it with a camera, you don't think that legitimates mm. the movement? legitimates the thing that they're taking part in. You don't think that's giving them a camera. You don't think that is a form of, of, of creating media. It's their only form of social participation because then they can go put that video on, on the local news and say, look, I was a part of that. I did that because there's nothing else that they're doing in COVID. Mm. It's the only embodiment of identity that you're socially being incentivized to do. Mm. You're corralling people into these movements because you've restricted all other forms of identity enactment. Mm. And when I talk about these things, you know, I was, when I was at the black lives matter rally in my small hometown, people said, Jared, go up there and say something, go up there and say something. I'm like, this is the nature of my conversation. Mm. And that doesn't fit within the context of people wanting to be angry Mm. and screaming and marching up and down the streets. Mm. And it seems to replicate the same way that I was restricted in speech in a locker room
1: mm.
2: because this doesn't, this doesn't fit. It doesn't fit the, 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 the machismo and the bravado of beating my chest and having an emotive uh, way of expression. And so um, I, I, I guess I say all of these things because I think that we've been reduced as individuals and, uh, and collectively in our identities, to the point where it seems to be that the only social conversations that we can tend to are these 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 few slots very similar to what we were talking about these few slots that football players go into after their career our collective engagement has been minimized to covid masks hydroxychloroquine uh black lives mattering uh all lives mattering blue lives mattering we've we've been we've been Kind of funneled into these hashtags, uh, and what a book that I, I, I just finished with. Um, Frank Ferretti uh, writes uh, the the book "Where Have All the Intellectuals Gone?" And what he talks about, uh, one of the aspects of that book is that this 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 funneling happens when. Structures that government bodies and corporations and institutions reestablish a point of connection with the population, especially political. Everything is being politicized right now. Yeah. And because of that, it's reestablishing the power that politicians have. Mm. Because we've drifted so far from seeing them as credible. right? We have drifted so far from those being the characters that describe what America is. mm Because we've got Netflix, we've got Amazon, we've got YouTube, we've got online content, we've got streamers, we've got all these different ways of interpreting reality, just Mm -hmm. like you talked about. yeah, That this, now, by corralling all of these things and limiting your expressions, you're corralling them back into these hashtags, mechanisms, and movements that are largely... Uh, either controlled or subsidized by the very corporations, institutions, and politicians that claim to represent them mm. and so it's once again connecting the citizen, connecting the individual to these uh, i guess uh, corporations institutions yep. and, and 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 large governing bodies mm. so I don't know if. Dude. It, it just seems like it's 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 a reconnecting point in terms of how they get to allocate our fears. Yeah. And how they then get to allocate our morality. Mm. Uh and it just feels like a reestablishment of of a power dynamic uh, yeah. because we've been able to drift so far in our own ideological silos.
0: Oh. Uh, dude, so profound what you're talking about, man. And uh there's so much in there too. First of all, it's interesting how it's so ingeniously constructed. The structure is so ingeniously constructed that where have all the intellectuals gone? Well, men. most people have been turned into what I like to call faux intellectuals because you think you're thinking objectively and you're thinking critically about issues, but you're really just parroting the narratives that you're seeing on your streaming on your feed yes and you're not no longer are people given an opportunity to um on the surface go and look at the source of information we're getting secondhand thirdhand fourthhand information from people who didn't who we don't know where the source is anymore yeah It's interesting what you said about having Black Lives Matter people coming to your town from New York because my brother went to the Burbank Black Lives Matter protest Mm -hmm. and he marched and he said that it was totally cool. The cops were super helpful. You know, they came up to the guys who were organizing the march and they said, hey, whatever you guys need, we're here for you. We're on your side. It's all love here, man. It's a concert. Yeah, like we we're here for like let, let you guys say your piece and do this thing and be pe- and we're all here to be peaceful and and keep it it good so you can speak your truth and do what you need to do. So my brother said they're doing the march and it's it's pretty profound like people coming together all ethnicities, black, white, brown, yellow, purple, everybody's coming together to to in solidarity for this movement which is really powerful and a really good thing but then he said there was there was this there were a few of these characters who were had a different energy about them they were militarized and one of them had a microphone and said or a megaphone and started going yo burbank we knew y'all would fuck this up. And I was like, really? This happened? And Gus was like, yeah. These people were literally like trying to start a violent uh, atmosphere. Yeah. Trying to light the fire of, of a violent antagonistic environment. yeah." And I was like, God, that's so interesting. And then to hear you say that the same thing happened in your town of Lebanon.
2: Yeah. It, it, it really seems like a performance, right? Uh, especially when you know you've got the cameras you've got the signs you've got the the bad guy and the cop you got the good guy and the protesters um and you have the the fervent belief uh and the kind of mystical character that or the characters that people are putting on their 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 cardboard cutouts that they're then you know uh you know taking and, and raising above their head and i wrote a piece about this called uh uh, I, I called it, and it's on my, my blog, called BLMWWE, um, where it just... I got to go read it, that. Where it kind of just felt like the WWE came to town when I was yeah. a kid. And what I talked about was when the WWE came to town, when the Globetrotters came to town, when these things came to town, I didn't have a black community uh, in my hometown. It was probably about 40 to 50% Hispanic, and then the rest was usually majority white so it was a lot of Puerto Rican and Dominican there was a very small percentage of Asian and black in my hometown and what I said in the article was just because it was absent of a black community doesn't make the place inherently racist just because there was a lack of black representation or families that created a community Uh and I think there are a lot of people in that town that it's it's almost like when the WWE comes to town, you wear your rock shirt. You know, you know the Rock. You wear your Austin three sixteen shirt. Uh-huh. You know, right? you you wear the 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 regalia and the 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 garb, the garb and the uniform of that event. Mm. And you don't always do that. You know, you may wear it to school, but you're not. You know, dropping the people's elbow on people in school. I mean, some people were. <laughs>
0: Right, right. But,
2: you know, I, I definitely was a part of those groups, you know, trying to do that to people. But I think this, it, it, it <laughs> felt it felt like, and what I wrote in it was like, because I didn't have my father there with me in that hometown, because I didn't have my black family in my hometown with me, um, I saw those kind of traveling shows as an opportunity to go see black masculinity. Uh. I wanted to go watch the Globetrotters just so I, just so I knew how to be black, mm. because it was absent in my own hometown of a community engagement, or the, where I got my blackness from was MTV, huh. where I got my blackness or how to be black or what other people then transposed onto me in my small hometown was yo did you see the new Biggie video? <laughs> do you wear the new Iversons? Mm. You know, do you have the new Jordans? Mm. Did you listen to the new Diddy album? Mm. And so my blackness was derived from pop culture. Mm. And when pop culture comes to town, I can't miss that because that's when I form my identity. Mm. That's when I get to associate with something that I've been deprived of. Mm. And that deprivation doesn't mean that it's inherently racist because that town didn't have a community of people to uphold uh, what it meant to be popularly black. Mm. And so I write that where it felt like it was people's opportunity to associate with what it means to be popularly black. Mm. And it seems to be the only thing that we're allowed to go out and do in large groups. Yeah. And, and so that was, you know, so when you talk about people coming from out of town to kind of stir up these things, that's what I exact. that's exactly what I felt in my hometown. Cause I was in my hometown for most of, you know, the beginning of quarantine was It felt like an opportunity. And it was the same thing when the, you know, I remember when I was a kid when the KKK came to town Mm. and they had a a meeting, you know, uh, or a a gathering uh, right in front of the municipal building, the same spot where Black Lives Matter rallied. It was people's opportunity to go get that hypothetical white supremacist that doesn't actually exist within the frameworks of your everyday life Mm. or exists within Lebanon, Pennsylvania they were coming from out of town mm. right and then now me as a black or hispanic or ethnic man or 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 minority get to go there and fight against the physicalized version of the hypothetical mm. and it's now i get to pump my my forearms with with blood and i get my neck coursing with blood through these veins and i don't get to do that any other time it's a it's the time that i actually get to go out there and beat my chest and honestly, I think the the people who populate a lot of these these protests, it's the people that would be showing up to summer concerts. Mm. It's the same it's the same demographics of people that want to go take a, a take a molly or have a few drinks or smoke a little bit of bud and go to these summer concerts to go to these collectivized versions of these abstract uh, abstract engagements from from society that I can go here and I can physicalize my. My, pers- my my seemingly abstract thoughts. So I guess what I'm saying is that it all felt like this, this patterned participation that went from the news and it's now our opportunity to embody it. It's our time to show and tell. It's our time to kind of take part in this, the same way that all other small towns then celebrate the Starbucks that finally got to the small town, mm. to celebrate the Chick-fil-A that finally came to town, to celebrate the... I remember when my town got Ruby Tuesdays. No, every single prom date went to Ruby Tuesdays. Because it was the only thing that came to town. It was their way to associate with the larger narratives of America. Mm. Now we're finally a part of it. We're being recognized. We, and it, it's it's a chain. It's not unique. And I think a lot of America uh, does that with these hashtags and with these these social movements. The same way that... You know that small towns get to finally engage uh, and and get to order a a, a venti latte wow. that didn't exist in the small town before. Wow. Saying the term venti latte, you know, it's like now all of a sudden we're sophisticated because we joined this larger social movement. Mm. We're aware here. Mm. We we have we we have awareness. Mm. You know, we're a part of this, and so I, I have so many different things that I could keep going about that, but it just feels like a replicant of patterned participation. Uh and I don't think COVID and Black Lives Matter can be separated in the way that people are engaging these things. It's
0: it's fascinating, man. So what I I what I wanna ask you next is so as a as a white person, this cascade of events begins, right? And You only need to spend about two minutes on social media, whether it was right after George Floyd or during the protests and the beginning of the Black Lives Matter marches, whatever it might have been, where now it's... You need to read about your whiteness. And you need to read about... You need to read white fragility and how to be an anti-racist. And you need to go and watch... 13th and you need to go and watch uh you know i am not your negro um and i did that i did that because did your homework i did (laughs) you know i'm like okay prescription here's this thing i mean i've grown up around black dudes and i love the african-american culture absolutely you know and i have nothing but respect and there's not a shred of racism In my family. And so. I'm like okay. This is apparently a real thing. This is apparently something that we need to now acknowledge. So I come from the standpoint of. Well if we're going to heal. And get to. And you know. I've, I've sort of. Transcended my identity. In life after football. Into this very spiritual realm. And I'm coming from a place of. We are all one, but maybe given the current circumstances in the history of humanity, we can't get to this place of achieving our highest greatness as a sing- singular species until we acknowledge the pain and trauma and the wounds of all our brothers and sisters of various races, religions, etc. Mm-hmm. So now is a moment of having to acknowledge this real open wound that seems to exist in America. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to do my research. I'm going to gather as much information I can of the perspective of what it's like to be black in America. So I do that. And it, I don't know if it changed. It didn't really do anything to change my perspective, but it definitely, enriched i mean i grew up going to brooklyn elementary schools where we were learning about langston hughes Uh, you know like these were and martin luther king and i remember as a little white kid having an incredible amount of uh idealistic heroism when i looked at martin luther king and even malcolm x Mm -hmm. you know these were men that Spoke their truth from their heart and were leaders of men and leaders of people, you know, and did incredible things were revolutionaries, which I've always considered myself to be. Um, And so, you know, I I watch all this stuff. I gather as much information as I can. And then. Something happens, I start to see guys like you, Mm. I start to see guys uh, like Marcellus Wiley start to question these narratives that are coming out. And I go, okay, okay. So interesting. Not all black people are on this train of dismantling quote unquote racism in 2020 or dismantling the patriarchal white archetype of American culture which I have no problem either with acknowledging that the patriarchy is falling and the divine feminine is rising. And mm-hmm. we're coming into an era and an age of femininity and power. Mm-hmm. Which is totally, I'm cool with that. You yeah. know, at, the, at my heart, in this fucking you ultimate mean- masculine physique, I have a very feminine spirit inside That's of me.
2: That's exactly what I was about to ask. Is do you, do you, But do you do you see that representing itself within uh, within male bodies. Yes,
0: I do. And I think the same with you, man. And, and what is that femininity to me? It's a more creativity. It's a more creative expression. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Fluid based expression of your humanity, of your artistry as a human creature. Mm -hmm. So I start to go, well, what is the fucking reality? Mm -hmm. What's the reality?
2: The reality is the balance. Mm -hmm. It's the balance. Mm -hmm. It's when you put off masculinity, when you condemn it, it will come back twofold to you. Yeah. In a in an area that you've gone blind.
0: Like everything else.
2: But that's what I think a part of this pushing for this feminine expression, what we're what we're essentially asking for is for daddy. Uh-huh. Right. And we're <laughs> for daddy to, to come back in about ten years in the form of a tyrannical government. Uh yeah. Right? Because we're 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 allowed to express, 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 express mm. and we keep breaking down walls, well, somebody's gonna build a wall. <laughs> <laughs> somebody will build a wall and somebody will tell you to stay in it because mm. now we need to, we need to bring back function.
1: Mm.
2: We need to bring back building. But a lot of times, you know, that, 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 that expression can lead to this, uh, or at least this is the way that I feel. And this is the way this is a part of, uh, I guess my, you know, kind of, I, I guess this is a part of my femininity or my expression or my creativity is, kind of uh uh, you know grasping at uh my using my intuitiveness uh to grasp at larger concepts that can't really be made clear and statistical Mm. um and i think that's kind of what happens when men like you and i kind of get together and our hands start moving while we're talking is kind of the embodiment of, of what's going on inside of our head, that we're trying to formulate these ethereal thoughts into something more solidified that we can transfer to people through these microphones. Yeah. And, you know, I, I it really feels like we're begging for... Uh, we're, we're, we're begging for the eventual... What we're, we're setting ourselves up for is an eventual restriction of our expression. Mm. Uh, and it, it kind of seems to be happening at the same time, uh, where certain people are getting restricted from expression where other people are allowed to express within this specific area so much more. Um, and, and it, it just, it, it feels like we're kind of backdooring our way into uh, a potential tyranny. Uh, and mm. a, and it's because when you, when you bring up the left, the left does feel like they want to express, 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 but the confines in which that expression happens is getting smaller.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Right. And so it's not anything and everything goes. It's no, anything within these confines goes. Yes. And if you're outside of those confines, like intellectual debate, uh, or challenging or illegitimizing somebody's subjective interpretation, Mm. um, seems to be, uh, not allowed. Mm. And, uh, that's the, the, those are the grounds in which you can be, uh, quote unquote canceled. um, and it, it
0: Which I think is a fascinating topic in and of itself. Yeah. This idea of cancel culture.
2: And and so I, I know that you keep kinda of going back to the, the your your perspective of as a white man. Uh-huh. And that's exactly why I love joining these conversations because it feels like you've been pushed into that being the precursor to all of your thoughts. Right. It's saying, Well, as a white man, right. It's where you're taking recognition of this 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 kind of collective idea that you need to now take precaution with everything that you're saying. Mm. And you must establish that. It's similar to the way that we we, we we talk about a Netflix series. Before we talk about a Netflix series, well, I don't watch Netflix that much. But let me tell you about the 30 episodes I just watched. Yeah, yeah. Because you know there's some type of negative connotation with watching Netflix. Uh-huh. But yet we do it. Yeah. So the thing is is that we, we put out this precursor, right, yeah. to say like, hey, look, I'm not – just watching netflix but (laughs) let me drop this down you know and tell you all about it hey look hey well as a white man Mm -hmm. right excuse anything that i'm saying that may come across as ignorant or that may inflame your emotions yeah uh but this is how i am perceiving things and i see it as my divine responsibility my innate responsibility to be able to join these conversations with either black or white people um about kind of having this this crossover of conversation. I've always been this guy, mm-hmm. even at Penn State. Yeah, I was this guy. Yeah, where I, I was tell. the the guy that went to the white frat parties, mm-hmm. and the black guys in the locker room were like, "Yo, JR, I heard you went to Pi Cap. I heard you went to Sig Tau. Yo, what's it like over there?" I'm like. Just come Just with me, come with, come with me, man. <laughs> yeah, but I don't got one of them polos. I'm like, well, I got three in the, in the closet. Put one on, man. If that's what you want, you can go dress as, you, as your dress. But yeah. like, if you want a polo or you want, you know, yeah. uh, let's throw one on. What's yeah. up? Yeah, you know. And, I then, love that. and then the white guys are like, yeah, wh- where are these black frat parties at? I'm like, well, they got to have them off campus because they don't have uh, frat houses uh. on campus. So they have them at a fire hall or an apartment or somewhere off campus. I'm like, well. You know, well, they dance there and stuff. Yeah, they dance. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. oh, oh, you want to, you want to go? <laughs> oh, okay, yeah, 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 come on, let's go. Yeah. You know, and I was always kind of bleeding this, this crossover, blending this, this crossover in between. And you're like a bridge, connection. and I really feel like that's that's why I love tending to these conversations because uh-huh. I feel like yeah, men who who tend to intellectual things. Uh, feel restricted in tending to these conversations. And I love to be that lubricant.
0: Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, man. Well, you know, it's so funny. I say that. I guess I say that. I I preface all of these conversations with as a white man or from a place of being a white dude. Because my hope is that with that, that's sort of the anesthesia by which someone then who is – who would be otherwise totally offended by anything I say, that's can perfect. go, at least he has this awareness.
2: Yeah, that's perfect. Anesthesia is a perfect word.
0: Yeah, it's an, perfect. Anesthe- it's an anesthesia just to grease the the information so that it can enter in and be absorbed rather than immediately rejected on the face value of me being white and having a view that might be off kilter from the mainstream narrative
2: yeah it's a great metaphor and observation
0: um so dude i mean i i so appreciate everything i mean this is awesome and I, i would love to have more of these conversations with you um i had there was one other thing i i thought of that i wanted to say before we wrap this thing up but
1: um
0: i can't fucking can't think of it right now
1: no worries.
2: Sports, with no crowds, have oh. no me- have no meaning. Oh my god! Zero man.
0: meaning. It's that thing you said. I you know I love Alan Watts. You mm-hmm. get into Alan.
2: Yeah, yeah, I got I got into him a little bit. He, so there's some there's some there's some of the audio stuff that I've listened to too late at night, and it's it's scared me. Yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah. So it's like, all right, I got to rein myself in. I got something to do tomorrow. Yeah, Alan.
0: <laughs> Alan Watts is one of my favorite all time. Thinkers, mystics, uh, philosophers. And he 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 talks about this thing where, you know, there is no you without your environment. There is no environment without you, like your whole experience of this world. We've been coaxed into this belief and understanding of. Um, this is the world outside that I'm seeing. But actually what you're seeing is your eyes are this portal that's taking in the light and creating this whole image inside of your brain. So really, without you, there is no out there. Mm -hmm. And in the same way, going back to our football conversation, you're not a D lineman unless there's an O lineman sitting in front of you. Exactly. And then going, taking that further and out into the real world. You, how do you know what your beliefs are if there's not someone there to have a contrary belief? Mm-hmm. And so with that idea in mind and this fundamental aspect of our experience as humans of going back to that thing of what's the ground? Like where's the solid ground that we can all operate from? Because it feels like in this post COVID quarantined isolated world where we're only allowed to gather in protest for a very specific thing or we're only allowed to gather our information through screens now, which is giving us very myopic biased information. It's like we don't have our feet on the ground anymore. No
2: no and that's kind of one of the things that it's been really interesting to read um, ted kaczynski's thoughts interesting in, in, in the unabomber the, yes the unabomber. where do
0: you read his thoughts do you uh, have a book
2: yeah it's actually right here technological slavery oh
0: wow that's his book that's his book wow and you know that title gives me chills because i feel like that's so poignant for where we're at right now
2: yeah it's it's exactly where we're at and Hold on, so what was uh, now? Because uh, I start going off
0: on all. No, no. But what were you? What My were you? that was it, that was it. I just wanted to acknowledge. Oh, look at this cool dog. By the way, everybody, we're in a guest house at Brian Wilson's estate, like I mentioned, that probably Charles Manson hung out in. Yes, de-
2: definitely
0: <laughs> Charles Manson. Charles Manson, and I have to tell you. As much as you might think that would have a really dark energy, this place is full. And as Jared said when I got here, he's like, this is fertile land, and it sure as hell is. It feels so vibrant and full of life and creativity and love, I have to say. Contrary to whatever notion i might have come in if i had known i was coming to a guest house that charles manson stayed in yeah yeah which I is did, very I odd didn't,
2: i don't want to throw it out there too early i yeah. want to kind of incorporate it into this yeah you know and kind of have that and kind of have that resonate through these microphones a little yeah bit. man but uh, i think
0: it's there i feel it um but no what i just that was kind of it what i wanted to say is that you know without this without having our feet on the ground. How can we know where we are?
2: Yeah, and that's what he talks about a lot is, or I shouldn't say a lot, there's a certain segment in it where what technology does to us is makes us slaves to those who control the technology Mm. Uh, because rapid accumulation or changing of accepted morality leaves you in a a state in which you can't stand on solid ground. Uh Nothing is solid. You can't build traditions. Mm. You can't build any of those things because your your tradition goes obsolete in two weeks. Wow. So the thing is, is that if, and I, what I prescribe to people, first, delete Snapchat, okay? <laughs> Snapchat is the lowest common denominator of human interaction. Delete that off your phone. Uh, second, get off of Twitter mm. and only go on objectively. Yeah. Okay, because it's a constant stream of what's accepted, what's being refuted, what's not, mm. uh, what's allowed, who's been killed, who dies, how we should praise them. You're not praising them enough, mm. right? It's a constant, it's, it's, it's not, there, there's nothing that you can hold on to. There's nothing that can give you a solid foundation to think logically. When you're constantly inflamed, you have no way of thinking logically. And I think that's one of the biggest issues with the black community is that they're constantly inflamed by their cultural characters, which they have no control over. Mm. It's the media that keeps inflaming their collective identity. Mm. So you have no you have no ability to think rationally or logically in your response. Mm. You're constantly reacting emotionally. And they in and and, 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 at, and being black, you want to be able to legitimize your 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 constant state of emotional expression. Mm. But that goes because, and I think that happens because none of your cultural characters that inform you of your identity are, have any sanctity. There's no sacred, there's nothing sacred about them. Mm-hmm. It's, it's constantly on display. And I think, uh, I think when, when you have such fast changing information about what are accepted norms, you can't have any solid ground. Mm-hmm. You can't build new traditions. And that's a part of, you know, I'm, 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 I started a a project in my hometown of putting up this sculpture, Mm. uh, this figurative sculpture, this piece that I saw in New Mexico about two years ago. And it really struck me because the figures in it were so strong, yet still very interpretive. And it's one larger uh, figure or being bending at the hips and putting his arms behind uh, its back and bending down to a smaller figure who's articulating at the neck, looking up at it. And it kind of represents this archetypal kind of, uh, you know, uh, parental relationship mm. or even father, right. Where that articulation of the hip of the larger being, you're not sure whether it's a few degrees down, it's tyrannical father, few degrees up. It's a benevolent father, right? Mm. The benevolent father is reaching down to tend to his child. Mm. The tyrannical father is keeping that child exactly where he's at and not allowing it to grow. And that's this line that I really think is represented in this piece Mm. and really struck a chord with me. So that I wanted to to put into solid ground. Mm. It's for people to have solid ground to stand upon, something physicalized where they can now interpret this relationship that doesn't have anything to do with race, has nothing to do with the Civil War, that has nothing to do with anything. And I wanted to provide new physicalized solid ground that people can stand upon and interpret Mm -hmm. So that people can tend to something solid that isn't changing, that isn't constantly fluid, that isn't something that it's like, oh, we're not allowed to say that this week. That 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 line of thinking and that line of existence leaves people in a state where they become so pliable. You can you can become pliable and put a mask on without questioning because it's a form of identity formation and it's giving you some sense of morality to wear the mask. Mm -hmm. You ask people. Have you read the science on it? It's like, no, it's not about that. It's about being compassionate for others. Right. And It's like, okay, so you're using the mask wearing as a sense of morality and moral high ground, not necessarily because you've read any of the science. Well, I believe in science. Oh, Oh. thank you for saying the word believe. Because if you're not taking measurements and if you're not reading the scientific literature, you're enacting a sense of belief. Mm. You're enacting a sense of belief. I've gotten into so many arguments with close friends where it's like, oh, well, I believe the doctors that are in my life that are telling me the right things. Right. So I'm like, you're still enacting a sense of belief. So I guess that's what I'm saying is is that I think in a constant changing landscape, that's what's triggered mm-hmm. is your sense of belief, yes. is your irrationality. Uh. Okay, So we're all acting irrational. Uh, ir- irrational, And I think that's why people love your voice. Mm-hmm. And I think in my own personal life, people love my voice Yeah, because it represents – a certain stern yet accepting baritone
0: stability.
2: There's stability in the voice that you're, you, when you have the confidence to say, this is who I am, this is who I was, and this is what I want to be. And this is it. You're creating a line mm-hmm. in which you walk. Yes. And people want to know that they can walk a straight line too. Yes. Or at least that they can tend to that. And I think the the tone of your voice does that. And that's what I told you when you first walked in that I really appreciate about your selfie videos that you do. Yeah. Is that, People can check back into that. Yeah. People can come back to that and say, "What's going on in the world?" And they can go click an Eben Britton video. Yeah. Right, and they can hear that voice, and they can see you walking, enjoying the sunlight, talking about a thought you had that uh, the thought you had today, Mm -hmm. appreciating a cloudy sky. Yeah. You know, whatever that is, you're still here. You're still creating this kind of. Uh, uh, line of thought that creates some type of digital stability for people. Yeah, because as they're scrolling and then they see you with the smile on your face and your 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 you know your 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 traps and your shoulders and your chest out, it's like fuck. I can I can hang on to this guy for a little bit. I can sit here and listen to the fifteen minute IGTV video mm-hmm. instead of keep it, you know instead of me scrolling. And that's what I'd like i like to think that I represent in people's lives too on a personal level and Definitely. then with some of my my projects as well. So.
0: You do, man. I mean, Jared, you're one of my heroes, bro. Hey, Same to you, man. Seriously, Straight up, seriously. How to survive <laughs> out
2: here in L.A. Yeah. <laughs> no
0: doubt, man. You know? This was so awesome, bro.
2: I really appreciate you coming over here and reaching out, man.
0: Absolutely, I man. Really I want to do it again. I would love to, too. Uh, I'd love to. I know there's more to talk about. Um, well, yeah, dude. Uh, you know, beyond anything... I want people to know that they have the power within themselves to walk that straight line or to find it Mm -hmm. because no one, no one showed me what my line was. You know, it took a lot of hard work. It took a lot of practice. It took a lot of fuck ups. It took a lot of pain and, and strife. But you know what? I've gotten to a place where at least I know what's real in myself and I know what's true in my heart. And we all have that, you know, these, these technology is a magnificent tool for us to use, but when it becomes the end all be all of our existence, which it has in many, in many, uh, people's lives, it's incredibly destructive Mm -hmm. and it's all it is, is a distraction from your humanity. So man, I I appreciate it. it's so validating for me to hear that from you. So I thank you, dude, and without a doubt, Jared, you're seriously you're one of you're one of my heroes, man, because Whoa, man. you're just so you're ironclad in in the line you're walking. Mm-hmm. You know of your truth, and it's so important right now. I mean, I'm convinced that the way out of this. Is through conversations like these, no question, and through people continuing to it to follow their heart and then speak their truth. Yeah. So dialogue, um, man. That's it, man. Uh, anything you want to shout out for people?
2: Um. Yeah. Well, I, I want to say thank you uh, to you and and us having that occurrence with you know Tyson Ranch and all that that, that led to this and and obviously you know some some kind of uh, other connections with through the cannabis world um and uh i think more than anything like i've never done plugs of any of any sort but there's a few things that i i kind of plugged the idea of the the sculpture yeah that's amazing in, in, in man my, In my company I, i'll show you the visual afterwards um uh my company that 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 i created was called uh, we, it's called threshold mm. and uh and i got that from um uh, the amount of uh terminologies that uh that Joseph Campbell used mm. that really inspired me. When I was, that was probably the biggest book that that I that really created a pivot in my life in mm. my perspective was reading uh, "Hero with a Thousand Faces." Mm. Uh, and one of the terms there was a threshold guardian, and uh, and you know these are the people that will that that grow you, that feed you, that protect you, uh, are usually in a parental form, um, but it can come in the form of a corporation, a team, a coach, any of these things those things that grow you, protect you, and feed you will inevitably hold you back, mm. right? And uh, it's almost like in, in order for your growth to keep going, that's it's an inevitable part of reestablishing that relationship and growing past the balance that they set for you originally to protect you um, and that you must grow past it, but you also must find a way through it. Um, um, and and I think that that's why I, always, I, I wanted to name my company Threshold, was in recognition that you have limitations and that they are necessary for your growth, but then they're also necessary to break as well mm. for your growth as well. And that limitations are, are necessary for an incubation period. Mm. And then once you get past that and you start pressing up against the walls of those limitations, that's where you you, you hope to have a, a benevolent figures that set those walls and limitations mm. that will make you press hard enough against that wall that your effort breaks through it mm. as opposed to them just opening it for you or never allowing you to break through it. Mm-hmm. Um, so Threshold was in recognition of that, we, that we had necessary limitations. I love us. that, dude. Um, and so that's what the, the sculpture project is being run through right now in my hometown. and that's We're awesome. going to put it at Coleman, uh, Coleman Park with uh, a mixture of, of being a donation through my, my high school. Um, for the past two years, I've been working on a CTE documentary. Uh, that we actually are really close to wrapping up and getting some of the final edits done to it. We laid the structure down. And a part of that actually relates to what you were talking about in terms of these large narratives is that in the absence of our own ability to tell our own stories, we'll inevitably live out other people's, mm. right, God. That, 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 lay, that are laid upon us. And so that's what this is about. That's what the the doc is about in that when when I was finished with football and I would run into people – the first thing they would say, Do you play? And I'm like, Oh no, I don't play anymore. And then their shoulder slump and their neck kinda twinges and they go, Oh. Yeah. Oh, you, you, you yeah. don't play anymore? Yeah. I'm like, No, 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 why not? And then then before you even answer their question, they go, The injuries, the concussions, huh? You alright up there? I heard about that C T E thing. You okay? And then I realized in 2017, half of my year was spent defending myself from the world thinking I was crazy because yeah. they watched the Will Smith movie We're saying crippled. that I was. Yeah, thanks, thinking that I was automatically going to be that. So I didn't want to tend to that narrative. And I went out and I re- started reading books and I started doing nothing but li- listening to lectures and other areas of, of study and, and intellect and life and so- society. And I tried to bring it back in and, and, and apply it to this doc. Um, so can't yeah. wait for that, man. So yeah, shout out to all of those things, and, and shout out to uh, to me being able to be here on this, this beautiful estate uh, that I'll be moving off of in the next week or so, um, and uh, and yeah, uh, yeah, hit me up at Max Bear seventy five on Instagram. We'll um, have that and engage any of the, the the content that's on there. I'm open to disagreements, agreements, you know, all that type of stuff.
0: <laughs> Love it, dude. Thank you, dude.
2: Thank you. Appreciate it, man.
0: Yeah, man. Well, all right, everybody. Uh, I hope you guys got a lot out of that. I know I sure sure did. That was one of my favorite conversations I've had since doing this podcast, since doing any of the podcasts I've done in my life. Um, so that being said, everybody, I hope you have a fantastic rest of your day. Hang tough out there. Stay positive. Stay in the light. Keep thinking for yourself. Keep meditating. Read some good books. There's a lot of great information out there, and it's important that you do your own research. I'll say it again. Critical thinking is a revolution in this day and age. So lots of love to you guys. Until next time, I'm Evan Britton. This is the Eben Flow Podcast, and we're out of here. Peace.